everyone, and welcome back to the Good Money Pod. Hosted by myself, Ryan Edwards Pritchard, I'm the CEO and founder of Cape, a new expense management platform issuing corporate cards for modern Australian businesses. Uh, we have had a slight break from recording of late as we've had our heads down as a team in build mode, uh, launching our own startup, um, but it is amazing to be back. So, and for anyone needing a refresher or for those new to the good money, wondering what is this show all about, then fear not, I'll provide some context. Now more than ever, the path to building scalable, industry-defining startups can be a long and winding journey, my friends. We know that ourselves, which is why we're excited to be building a show specifically for CFOs, finance professionals, founders, and business leaders to bring insights from those uh, that have been there so that they can share their experience in the hope of fast-tracking your own personal development and learning. We're focused on getting under the skin of some of the greatest and brightest minds from the worlds of technology, finance, and startups. Previous episodes have included some incredible CFO guests from the likes of Airtasker, Eucalyptus, and Car Next Door. If you haven't listened to them, be sure to go check them out. Uh, we've been able to focus on analyzing the strategies that have propelled them forward uh, as an organization, as, a, as an individual, as teams. Uh, we then distill this into actual insights for you to take away and implement uh, in your own time. And be sure to check out the show notes where we give you that breakdown too. Moving on to today, I'm super excited to get to sit down with none other than Sally Bruce, the CFO and CEO of CultureAmp. Thanks for making the time for us today, Sally. How are you doing? Really well, Ryan. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's lovely to be here. Well, it's awesome to get the opportunity to sit down and chat. As we've got so much I'd love to cover with you today. Uh, we have been living through some pretty historic times, right? With everything going on from, I guess, the, the recent floods up here um, to seeing the heartbreaking war kick off uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then you know, this this pandemic that's been a cloud over our heads for the past two years, which feels like the focus and the narrative of that has has shifted away of late, thankfully. How's the how's the year unfolded for you uh, with life down in Melbourne, I'm interested? Oh, look, I think, uh, like everyone, stepping into another year with COVID uh, wasn't uplifting, but I have some great optimism as to what might uh, hold, what, what the year might hold for us, actually. Uh, very, very um, delighted to say that... Um, for us, we have had some return to normality. We haven't been in the office, but uh, I have managed to pop over to SF, to San Francisco, uh, in the week before last, actually, and catch up with some team members and some investors and some board members. And, oh, it really felt good. It really felt good to be jumping out of the fishbowl and uh, to be in real life with some people again. So I'm pretty optimistic uh, that uh, you know, we will navigate with more grace this year than we have the previous two. What, um, what was it like getting over to San Fran? Was that, was that your first international foray for the last, well, post, post-pandemic? for the last two years? Absolutely. Uh, I flew home from the Philippines into this pandemic, and I've largely been a domestic creature since then, or totally, really. So, yes, first flight. Uh, it was fantastic, and uh, we only went to San Francisco, and we were pretty cautious because we didn't know what to expect. But we'd been planning before Christmas 
Uh, we thought if the rules changed, we could find ourselves in quarantine for Christmas. That didn't feel like such a good idea. And then um, we got into the new year and obviously Omnicron had taken off. And we thought, well, actually, I can see a little slit in the door. Let's push our foot through, get across before we can't. But it was very successful and we had a great trip. Um, we did a few precautionary things in that uh, we travelled only with carry-on because the advice was there's lots of flight changes and cancellations, but we didn't really have any of any of those concerns and uh, restrictive in terms of we didn't do any gathering of large numbers of people. It didn't feel appropriate or safe. Um, so we basically met people one-on-one. We're very lucky to stay in a house of someone that we knew over there and uh, we could have you know, small groups for dinner or catch up in their homes, etc. And uh, whilst it's not the same as having town halls and catching up with groups of people, it was lovely to have that intimacy and that slow one-on-one time or small group time uh, after so long. And in my case, I had I started work at Culturamp during the pandemic, so I was meeting people that I'd been dealing with virtually for quite a long time now. Uh, and I can't understate my hunger to um, meet them face-to-face and have an in-person experience. I can totally empathise with that, especially as we've got a small remote and hybrid-based team ourselves. Uh, it's such a, a beautiful mess of sorts, though. You know, just listening back to that, you know, what you just went through, it's, it's a reminder that if there's one positive to take away from the virus and the, the horrible experiences we've endured is that we've been able to also witness the human spirit and ingenuity as to how we move on collectively, you know, together, stronger. You know, and there's something that I feel is not often talked about when it comes to startups, which is the the people and the team dynamics that form when you collaborate on a startup endeavor, especially when you throw in the mix the macro elements of these unprecedented times that we've endured for the past two years. You know, sometimes when those calibrations are truly spectacular, it's almost like listening to some of my friends that have actually served together, you know? Um, I mean, take that with a pinch of salt and don't take it out of context, right? But I mean it from a perspective of just the bonds that you create and the the, the depth of those bonds, which is incredible as you're you know, you are taking on something that's frankly impossible with what you're trying to build and what you're trying to achieve. But nevertheless, you push through and you persevere with confidence, which perhaps you shouldn't have when you look at the odds that are stacked up against you, uh, whether that's because you're up against large incumbents or well-funding competitors, or you're just needing to educate a market to do something that they frankly haven't done before. And you need to create that awareness for them and, you know, the willingness for them to, to give your product a go, which, uh, which, which brings us on to very nicely, uh, cool tramp, Sally. So, um, you know, you guys have built one of Australia's most iconic technology, uh, startups now scale up, uh, which is, you know, just fantastic to see. Uh, and it's got an awesome mission at its heart for those that don't know, how would you describe CultureAmp? So CultureAmp is a software-as-a-service technology company. Uh, we, we focus on employee experience, uh, the things that you would see that uh, would uh, resonate with what we do or uh, so you would identify with are 
uh, we have um, employee engagement platforms, so the employee yeah. surveys. Uh, we have performance platforms. Uh, we have developed components. Uh, we also have components around belonging or diversity and inclusion, uh, as well as recognition. Now, all of this is an, ex- an employee experience platform. And our mission is to improve the world of work. So everything we do is targeting managers and people at work uh, to make their work experience better. So uh, in a nutshell, we have 5,000 international customers that range from um, small businesses right through to the very top end of town. So some big ones that everyone will know are Marks & Spencer, uh, PwC, Coles, Group M, uh, Unilever, uh, and then lots in between and down the spectrum. And uh, we are um, we were founded here in Australia, and our head office is in Melbourne, Victoria. But sixty percent of our revenue is North America, twenty percent is Europe, uh, and twenty percent is here. Uh, so most of our business is, is really kind of facing into the norma- northern hemisphere currently because the market there is substantial and uh, because we started here we're relatively mature here but the growth etc is all offshore. I can imagine that must have been a super interesting challenge just from a a CFO's perspective with how you uh, maximize financial returns given the huge cost of developing, launching, sustaining uh, multiple international operations. Obviously, having a firm, uh, you know, really firm understanding of your core capabilities, uh, strong product market fit, and in your first uh, first market, first territory in terms of Australia, definitely helps. Um, but then there's still the the attitude that you need to build internally and that culture in terms of how you go about outlaying capital investments uh, and making sure that the board's happy with that as well at such an early stage, just to avoid the team running off in all different directions that have no chance of seeing the light of day. So uh, when you started uh, identifying and assessing the growth opportunities internationally for Cooltramp, how did you go about the market sizing piece and, and mapping them out as a set of sequence launch priorities out of interest? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the genesis of it is that, uh, and, and this predates me, we made very early decisions to have presences overseas. So we established San Francisco office, um, New York office and London office uh, pretty quickly in uh, our life cycle. Uh, that's really stood us in great stead. Uh, they are difficult things to do and it's difficult to globalise a company. It adds a ton of complexity. But uh, there was some wisdom, I think, in doing it early because it is actually how we do things. Our ways of working are really styled to um, a remote workforce. Um, the largest number of staff we have are still Australian-based, but that's predominantly because our product engineering and technology teams are largely Australian-based uh, because of the history of our business. That will change over time, but uh, it is a really big part of our business because it builds our product and develops it and maintains it. But definitely uh, that is pivoting very quickly because we are essentially uh, you know, adding three to 400 people. Last year we added 400 people. This year we'll add something similar. 
and the vast majority of those are offshore. So uh, as we go forward, the leadership team is and has been really split across um, Australia and um, the US. And most of our board members uh, and investors are US-based. We have one who is UK-based and then we have two who are Aussie. But, uh, you know, everything we do, we report in US dollars, we trade in US dollars. Um, You know, we are uh, fiercely uh, proud and patriotic Australians and we're very committed to growing the skilled workforce here, which is why our product house is here. But, uh, you know, the opportunity for us is global. So we're, we're, you know, we're taking Aussie um, prowess to a global stage. Amazing. And then in terms of the, the, the structure on the engineer and product uh, team, is there an element in terms of hub platform build from here and then having, um, I guess, the offshoots of customer success, relationship managers, account executives, all that kind of uh, customer-facing or the customer-facing roles um, more locally based in terms of North America and Europe, as well as then, I mean, uh, and is it then also going as far as having some form of a squad or a product team that is doing elements of localization, or is it really is, I'm just keen to understand, because I mean, we, we often talk about it ourselves, you know, we're, we're far off internationalizing, um, but it's definitely something that you are mindful for as to how do you optimize for these things as you scale. And it's something which everybody kind of has in their mind right now. Well, absolutely. Our product team, our engineering team, uh, is uh, largely here, and that is by design. Uh, that will change over time. We do have offshore representation of those, but essentially they are from organisations that we have acquired. So where we've acquired a company, they will have um, product teams and our acquisitions have been offshore. So we've been building product capability offshore through that acquisition path. As we go forward, that will shift in terms of uh, we will definitely still have um, the the hub and the vast majority here in Oz. It, It makes it a lot easier to collaborate uh, we, we have a, a, a product design which is modular and so you can buy um, all or parts thereof, but it is a single pane of glass. So you have experiences of different parts of the product, even if you only bought by one part. So, uh, you know, how it interfaces and how seamless it is, is incredibly important. Uh, internationalization has to date been done by here. Uh, the I, the acquisitions we've done have all been technology IP acquisitions. So those teams have obviously been specialist teams around the IP we've purchased and worked on integrating that into our single pane of glass. Uh, but with regard to the other teams, uh, look, I have a very unusual role because I have um, everything you would imagine I have as the COO and the CFO being uh, I have legal, I have finance, I have security, I have IT I have biz ops and strategy, but I also have the customer support team as well. And um, all of those teams have uh, operate around the sun. So we have people on the ground for all of those teams. And, uh, you know, literally we have a workforce that operates around the sun. So it's been one of the things that I've really loved learning as I've joined Culture Amp is Essentially, we have uh, an ethos where we work out loud. It's part of our ways of working. And so 
quite literally our teams will hand off to uh, another kind of counterparty in a location that continues the piece of work through the night. So one of the things I love to do is to review a document at the end of the day and then send it out into the ether to my team, whichever team I'm working on. And by morning, it's like, you know, the fairies have been and magicked it into something wonderful and evolved. So we have that system around all our teams. Uh, I think largely all of them. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head where we don't, uh, but it keeps us very connected and uh, the conversations are continuous. We can't always be in all our team meetings. So we use a lot of meeting recordings. And so the, the campaigners who are excellent at this are very good at um, listening to uh, meetings that they've missed at speed. Uh, I'm not quite so good at that, but um, uh, it, it's been really good. And, and for us, I guess, the pandemic, while it's been disruptive in so many ways with, you know, children at home and, uh, you know, access to loved ones, uh, face-to-face meetings and the rapport uh, that that all creates, we actually had everything in place. You know, there's barely a meeting that we don't have someone globally. And so it's use of Zoom, use of tools to communicate and to share documents and things was well established for us. So I think we are very fortunate in that regard. You know what, it's it's interesting just kind of looking at this kind of, talked about the game of snakes and ladders before. Um, But for some that yeah, the, the transition into a pandemic world had just fast-tracked what they were already doing uh, or, 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 if anything, had just complemented what they were already doing and positioned themselves incredibly well just to then soak up talent. I, one thing I am I actually made a note of here, because we are going through this ourselves right now, is um, that mantra, did you say it was hold off loud? Sorry, hand off loud. No, work out loud. So Work out loud, sorry. Uh, sorry, you, you, you said work out loud. Um, because one of the things that we, uh, yeah, I guess our kind of our structure, which is somewhat unique, being a very early stage, uh, a little bit like you, well, you join in culture. Uh, we started Kate during the pandemic, so we've known nothing really but the uh, remote way of working. And on top of that, especially myself being based over here, and I landed during the pandemic, so there wasn't any opportunity to go out and meet anybody or do the usual kind of rituals where you get to kind of build a network. So um, when I started working on Cape and building the team, I really relied on my network, which was predominantly um, back in the UK and Europe. So we've got a super talented team uh, of engineers, uh, but they are on the opposite side of the world. Uh, they're actually a CTO, a front-end architect, uh, a couple of our engineers are actually back in London. Uh, and we've now got, in fact, a couple of more engineers in Sydney and a, a couple of product owners over here as well. Uh, but the thing that we are we're spending a lot of time and effort on right now um, is the is the processes. Uh, you know, it's the most important thing when it comes to productivity and specifically the communication uh, in terms of how do you actually achieve that asynchronous type of working when you're working across directly opposing time zones. And I think for us, I'm sure you've probably used the Mondays or the Jiras or the Trellos, and we've, we've tried different ones, but we've got ourselves into a nice cadence now with Trello and just granular detail in terms of uh, you know, clear lanes, clear owners and um, what owner yeah and then just how you structure the different cards how you gather the requirements and um, how you estimate the time and um, that's associated with each of those activities and burn down those cards it, it takes a lot of time and effort 
But uh, if you can achieve that, you know, it opens up so many opportunities to then uh, bring in talent from uh, areas that you wouldn't normally. You know, if, if the pandemic hadn't happened, we'd all be looking at just Australia uh, for resources, right, uh, in terms of engineering talent. And we'd, we'd all still be somewhat struggling. But the thing in terms of the pandemic, what it's definitely done is it's, it's forced us to think global. Um, and and really kind of adopt that type of mentality. And I think this is where culture I'm so, you know, uh, I, I did come across you guys a while back because one of the big pain points we had all about that communication and also how to build uh, a really strong culture um, when you are cross-border. And things like pool surveys and those kind of check-ins have, have become like imperative for us. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious, um, just from a, from an adoption perspective with, I mean, I, I feel the pain and I see the need with Coltram, but um, yeah, how have things transitioned uh, with your customer base over the last two years? Have you seen a big change? Because, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier on some incredible uh, enterprise clients, you know, which I imagine is a pretty lengthy sales cycle. Uh, but in terms of the types, the industries, the sizes, the sales cycles as well, the demands, how has the pandemic shifted? Um yeah, I guess the kind of uh, the types of customers and the the needs that they have. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I mean, we, as I said to you, we do we support small through to large. So, you know, uh, at the smaller end, you know, uh, the sales cycle will be thirty days or less. At the larger end, you know, more likely six months. Um, but um, you know, something that we do which differentiates us in the market, and I should have mentioned this before when I described what we do, we. Uh, everything we do is um, premised on uh, science, uh, what we call people science. And so you know, we have uh, a truckload of uh, behavioural psychologists and uh, they actually work with our customer base. Uh, they work in a couple of capacities. Everyone who is a customer of ours has access to the advice from our people science team of this is what your team is experiencing this is uh, what we actually um, have seen work and here's how you can adopt that and make those changes in your business. We also then have them as a consulting service so people might want to actually engage, you know, uh, our people scientists for a period of time to work on a specific piece of work. But they also design our product and uh, how do we actually engage and get engagement with people through our product, uh, which is all about having our product in the flow of work. So managers are actively using it for their one-on-ones, they're providing feedback, recognition. It's in their daily workflow and it's changing their habits and behaviour and their workforce is benefiting from it. Through the pandemic, what we saw was there was one quarter where I think everyone held their breath and went, we're not making really big buying decisions, we're just going to see what's going to happen. Um, And uh, universally sort of, Everyone was just cautious for a quarter there. Very quickly that turned to uh, an increase in demand for our product because people were having the epiphany, which was something we had known for a very long time, was that people are your greatest asset. How you engage with them is extraordinarily important. Um, They had realised that if they weren't great managers already and didn't have intimacy with their workforce, they had no context as to what conditions they were working in, uh, no context on how to support them. 
uh, and needed new ways to communicate and to ensure high quality meetings were happening between managers and people and coaching was happening. So uh, we saw great increased demand for our product uh, and that was across new users. So people going, wow, we really need this. We need the insights. Uh, I mean, we have so much data, I can't tell you. I'll, I'll come back to that. So, you know, access to our data is extraordinary. And then, you know, our existing clients were asking more of us. So our existing clients were wanting to do more frequent surveys, were wanting help with diversity and inclusion. Because we have a very large North American business, um, during the pandemic, we were dealing with a lot of diversity and inclusion demand because we had the George Floyd issue, Black Lives Matters. Then we had sort of uh, Asian hate crime activity in the US as well around the origins of COVID. And so that dimension of our business and the demand for people going, please help us with this was extraordinary. And um, I said, for people science really makes a difference here because uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, we have data on workforces across the whole globe. Um, I think we've got something like 400 countries that we collect data from uh, across our customer base and um, we can we've been able to identify here's just one thing that if you have an organization that rates really highly on belonging um, so in a diversity and inclusion perspective we can prove with evidence that you will outperform on the ASX 100 in Australia the NASDAQ in the US and the FTSE in the UK. And so, you know, it becomes pretty compelling to say, hey, uh, you know, let's talk about this uh, and we can actually work with you to form your strategies uh, that this notion of a diverse workforce or an environment where people um, are experiencing inclusion and belonging, um, really it's not a notional uh, financial case it's actually a very real one about the value of your organisation. So um, we've been uh, very, very uh, pleased to see that a lot of the things that have happened in the pandemic have had a silver lining in terms of managerial focus on people. I was curious, just with that and um, you know, with the, the lens that the the private markets, especially in terms of investors, they're always looking for different angles, different um, data sets. Uh, have, you, have you guys been approached in terms of that and collaborating with investors to assess companies for elements such as that? So if you look at things, you know, the obvious thing that a lot of investors, I find, will look at these days um, when they're trying to assess, you know, what is the most important thing within a business? You know, it's its people. It's a collective of people. That's what it is. And they tend to turn to the likes of um, Glassdoor. Yeah, and that, that's kind of one different angle. But that often gives uh, the lens of, you know, it'll give some super insightful, but I tend to find it's very polarizing in terms of Glassdoor. It's either lots of like glowing references and usually it's because you know somebody in marketing's had a push to try and get everybody out there to go get it done or it is somebody just really an edge case by the way but like grinding an axe and just really wanting to go for it and you know, because they are heavily disgruntled and this is a great place to go do that and i tend to find that it's not always a 
accurate reflection, I guess, from outsiders. And I do find that investors, when I speak to them, you know, it is one of the things that they'll often look at. And I do talk to the founders and they'll often say the same thing. I'm just kind of curious in terms of the data that you guys get access to and um, whether that's something which uh, is able to be shared externally, whether it's for investors or whether it's also there to be shared with potential employees. Because, you know, that's one of the other things, you know, it really is a talent war out there. And I think you want to try and show as many different, um, you want as many different data points that you can show what it's like to work there as possible that that are realistic. Yeah, well, if I go back to uh, our, our mission is to create a better world of work, uh, and we do that through the management layer. So the data that we collect on customers particularly is their data, and we would never share specific data on an organisation. The collective data that we um, have is publicly available. We we provide um, benchmarking of every dimension you can imagine around different workforces, different industries, uh, different locations on different categories, part-time, um, full-time, contract, uh, uh, gender, type of workforce, uh, et cetera. Um, we provide all that data publicly so that is available to everyone. But um, it is anonymized um, and um, packaged, uh, but we are a believer in the sharing of this data, but it's really for the organisation to do that. It's interesting in the US, uh, they're more evolved on this, say, than the UK and Oz. Uh, so the SEC actually requires companies of certain size um, to public as part of publish as part of their annual report, uh, you know, certain data which we would collect, whether it be engagement, demographic, diversity data, etc. So they're really pushing down a path of ESG and making it a requirement um, that your public disclosures include that information. I think that's the right place to do it. We see that voluntarily happening in markets like Australia and the UK. Um, with some data being required, uh, but it isn't um, it isn't wild, widely uh, practiced. Uh, whereas in the US, they're definitely making that so. And I think, to your point, it is a definite competitive advantage to do that. Uh, and or, or not, obviously, if it's not going well. But uh, I think you know, I tend to have that conversation if I'm talking to people. Uh, you know, in my own situation when I've been uh, interviewing for jobs, etc., tell me about your employee engagement results. Tell me what you see, what the areas you're working on. I mean, the reality is these are conversations. They're not data that um, shouldn't be shared without conversations. Every organisation has its capabilities to be worked on. Uh, the appetite uh, I think the valuable thing is what actions are you taking and how seriously are you thinking about these things? And that's where the richness is. It's in the conversation, not in the data. Absolutely. It's it, it's an interesting point in terms of the the mandate you know, as part of legislation. As um, you, know, you, you really hope that the hearts and minds, that you can win them there. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the time, uh, it's only really through strong arming, uh, through regulation, that you see big fundamental adoption and shifts in, in, in working practices. I, I wasn't aware of that in terms of the SEC, but that is super progressive. There is a couple of things there like I'd love to kind of dig into because um, your background as well, when I was looking into it, um, 
you know, clearly the CEW, for example, uh, and your work there, the, the diversity and inclusion element, it feels like it's something which is really at the core of um, your career and who you are. Yeah, no, well, CEW is an incredible organisation. So for those of you who don't know, it's Chief Executive Women and it's a membership organisation um, by invitation. And I'm on the board and I lead the Victorian chapter on this. But essentially the mission of CEW is women leaders enabling women leaders. And so we actually represent all the the largest end of town, whether it be corporate, government, uh, not-for-profit, uh, academic, sport, etc. cetera. Uh, now, with that, uh, you know, whilst we represent the top end of town, it's really about driving inclusion for women at all levels. And, you know, we recognise that with our position, we actually have opportunity to really drive change. Change you don't have, an opportunity that you don't have when you are kind of working up through the system. So, you know, if anyone's going to work on the system, it should be those who actually have best access to. And so we dedicate ourselves to that um, and we work on matters of government policy, such as uh, childcare access to so some of the changes that we have that occurred um, most recently about um, free childcare, et cetera, were the works of our lobbying. Um, at the moment, we're doing an enormous piece of work which is called Respect is Everybody's Business. And I'm speaking on that uh, for the AICD Governance Summit with Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination uh, Commissioner, uh, in March. But, uh, you know, really what we've done there is we've recognised uh, if, if we talk about sexual discrimination, uh, one in five experience it um, and uh, it typically lasts for more than 12 months. It typically targets women. It's typically uh, male colleagues who are the offenders. The victims are typically, you know, more affected when they're younger, when they're on work visas, uh, when they are uh, people of colour, uh, where, the, where they are LGBTIQ, where they represent a minority of any kind. And um, when they're vulnerable, which is just horrible to hear, frankly. It's true. And so if you think one in five women will experience this for more than a year and we know um, it also happens in hierarchical organisations, it happens in organisations where it is predominantly single-sex organisation, it's actually a really insidious problem that affects the well-being of a workforce, the health of a workforce, um, the retention uh, and, you know, the productivity of a workforce. We know why it happens. We know where it happens. We know who does it. Uh, yet we do very little about it. We expect victims to kind of raise their hand, hope that they'll be heard, hope they'll be believed, and hope that their job won't be at risk by speaking out. And so we've been doing an enormous amount of work to really drive the positive obligation of organisations to create um, as part of their uh, safe workplace practices, that they have a positive obligation to create a workplace that is absent sexual harassment. We've done enormous amount of work with both uh, the AICD and the BCA to develop uh, policies and public position papers, uh, ways that you can track this, uh, because generally it is an awkward topic that people like lean out on 
But, you know, it totally depends now on the courage of the victim to step into it and then, you know, how leadership might respond to that because of it is kind of a tricky one. So uh, it's a really big one in terms of workforce participation. It's also I think about it and think, you know, if I've got someone in my workplace that is experiencing this and, you know, it's you know, I think all of us who run organisations should know it's happening. There won't be a workplace that's precluded from it. Uh, that person will experience that on my watch for a year and I may never know about it and they're likely just to leave. Uh, you know, that's not what I want my leadership legacy to be. So there's lots of work to be done on that kind of thing. But we work across the whole spectrum of trying to drive uh, you know, cultural diversity uh, in leadership positions. We have a very large scholarship program, um, also sponsoring people from a variety of backgrounds to have international uh, education opportunities uh, and uh, leadership programs generally. So I love that work. Um, and, uh, I, you know, uh, it's always fun as a woman who gets very used to working in environments where you might be a minority in a meeting room to get a group of great women together and uh, self-organise around getting something done. Yeah, we, we need to see, we desperately need to see more of that happening. Uh, and uh, it's really encouraging to hear uh, that you're behind it and the passion you've got for it. Um, it's also depressing uh, to hear uh, just in terms of some of those stats. I think the, just for, for any of our listeners, what would be your advice in terms of participating in supporting that change and also supporting your workforce like what what are the practical things that people can take away from uh, from the organization uh, just to i guess as a safety net because as you say that's not that's not what anybody would want in terms of their legacy uh, to be thought of in terms of that happened to somebody and they weren't aware of so what what is it that we can do uh, to to shift the dial uh, and to start moving things forward it's a great question, Ryan, and thank you for it because I should have actually included that in the conversation. Uh, I'd I instruct everyone to check out a website called respect.cw.org.au. Uh, that is a, a repository of uh, a toolkit of resources for you to use of um, case studies and also of uh, conversations and how to facilitate those conversations to create a safe environment where people will report, be believed, feel safe and be heard. And uh, an enormous amount of work has gone into that. You, you don't actually have to reinvent the wheel here. One of the things that we discovered when we were talking to both executive teams and boards was that everyone was nervous about stepping into it. Uh, they were worried that they would open Pandora's box and be ill-equipped to actually um, provide a positive experience for people. And so there was a whole heap of reluctance. So in building this toolkit and this resource base and also offering people opportunity to have conversations with the membership to kind of role models, so like role play scenarios, et cetera, uh, we're saying, look, this is an industry standard on what good looks like. These are the policies that can be adopted by your HR teams. Uh, here are the positions that can be adopted by your board or published in your annual report. Here are report mechanisms for reporting, uh, and here's how you keep the conversation alive. So a lot of work has gone in there, and you can feel very confident that that work has been 
orchestrated by chief executive women, but the Australian Institute of Company Directors have provided all their resources as well as the Business Council of Australia. So uh, you've got three uh, you know, fantastic organisations who are authenticating that. You know, this is best practice. Uh, it's all available for free. Uh, use all of it, as much of it, uh, and tailor it to your organisation and go crazy. Brilliant. What I'll do is I will add uh, all the links uh, to the show notes so they're there for anybody who's interested. Um, one other point in, in terms of the CEW then, membership uh, and how to actually get involved for any, uh, especially uh, female leaders or aspiring female leaders that aren't just looking in terms of to implement this um, or anybody looking to implement this into their business, but those that are also looking to become members, um, how does that work? Because you mentioned about um, specifically chairing uh, the state in terms of Victoria. Love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, so it, it is. Um, so it's a it's a, a membership organisation which is by invitation, but all the resources that I've just spoken about are publicly available, and they're um, so everything we create is for public benefit. But essentially, uh, to become a member, you really um, what we do is uh, it is by invitation after being uh, nominated by two existing members who have known you for a period of time, who can authenticate, you know that. You are someone who is uh, very aligned to the mission here and um, you know, interested in pursuing that. Uh, we kind of uh, have no shortage of people knocking on the door, but we're very cautious about making sure that we have great values alignment uh, and people who are really committed to the act of enabling um, women leaders. So the best thing you can do is uh, actually speak to some women in your business or those who are in the marketplace that are senior and speak to them about the organisation and um, whether they themselves are uh, a member. And um, it's through that that um, access is. Nice. With CEW, so that's been something you've been doing outside of the, the full-time gig, a search in terms of culture now for, what was it, the last three, four years? Yeah, yeah. I've been a member for longer, but I've only been on the board for the last few years, yeah. And then at I have to kind of bring it up because I, I you know, again, look through your profile and incredible history, uh, just in terms of what you've done and where you've been. And we'll have to come on to some of it, but in terms of background, that, you know, for anybody out, out there, so you, you sit on a number of different advisory boards. One of them in particular, the NBL, I have to say, and also Melbourne Festival, which, uh, you know, if you're going to pick gigs kind of like outside of your day job, they, they sound pretty interesting. They sound pretty fun. Yeah, no, no. Look, I, I, I have really got a very interesting and varied professional history. You could talk about many things for a long time. But, yes, like I have for a long time now had interest outside of work for a couple of reasons. One, I, well, I love it. It feeds my soul uh, because, uh, you know, you've got diversity of people that you're contacting with uh, and I'm constantly learning, but also diversity of topics. So the NBL and the festival um, are both incredible examples of that. Um, I joined the Melbourne International Arts Festival, oh, I don't know, board about eight years ago. It is now the Rising Festival. It's a, a major international arts festival. And, um, when is, sorry, when is that, by the way? Because I am still relatively new to, Mel well, say Australia, and I, I've only had my first trip down to Melbourne this weekend and absolutely loved it, and I want to come back uh, as soon as possible. I would love to go check some, out something like that. 
So it's uh, the Melbourne International Arts Festival has morphed into what is called the Rising Festival and taken on board White Night and um, Live Music Festival. So it's the amalgamation of a number of historic festivals. So the Rising Festival is yet to be delivered for its first time in Melbourne. It was cancelled last year because of COVID, uh, but it is a winter festival, so target May, June. But it is extraordinary. I have loved being involved in that because, uh, you know, I have a very financial services background, a commercial background, uh, and I sit at that board table with, um, you know, artists, um, record uh, producers, you know, copyright lawyers across art, uh, you know, any number of creative people uh, who choreographing music, etc. And um, we just think about things so differently. So it's a joyful place for me because we'll be discussing a topic or a problem and I'll dissect it one way and someone across the table will dissect it a totally different way because we have such different backgrounds. And there is pure joy at that table because I'll look at them with a smile on my face going, wow, I would never have thought of it that way. And they'll look at me and say the same thing. So um, that kind of diversity of thought lives there. I'm learning and growing. And plus, you know, I get to go out and have a lot of fun with the festival, which is brilliant. Um, the NBL, very sim- similar. I, I had never really worked on a, um, a sports body. Uh, and uh, for both of these, I have to say, I was uh, drawn into both of them as I represented diversity of thought. I came from a very different background. I didn't have a sports administration or an arts background, but it, it's incredibly uh, similar experience in that uh tackling a whole heap of things that I had never contemplated in different ways and then I could bring a I can bring a dimension to the conversation that doesn't occur naturally because I have a different background so uh, lots of fun in both of those and you know uh, been totally educated to different economic models uh, you know uh, different ways that you support communities uh, and both of them while one is arts and one is sports uh, as alike as they are different and um it, it, yeah, they've been really special experiences for me. I love the way that you've got those three pillars there. Yeah, looking at your background from financial services and banking, sport with um, basketball, and then the arts with Melbourne. Uh, it's very well-rounded. Was that intentional when you set out and you had like the life plan and you're like, you know, this is how I think I should basically build the career. Like I, I should get myself through here. I should get myself into that kind of C-suite. And then even then, not necessarily kind of pigeonhole myself into one role, but you've, you've had a number of different roles. And then also outside of work, personal development, I'm going to kind of give back to the community in these different ways. Like, was that, was that by chance was it literally just serendipity or was it very clearly orchestrated that you kind of uh manifested this as such like you you this was the life this was the direction you wanted your career and your personal life to take i think it's all of those things um in, in terms of uh some of it's by chance like like um i have developed a reputation for as someone who will think really laterally and do something lateral and unexpected and is not frightened to do so. So I do think, you know, chance gives me those opportunities because people think to ask me about things that they may not otherwise. So um, someone said to me the other day, you know, I, I, I keep trying to do a Sally Bruce and think about, you know, what should I do that's very different? I mean, when you've become a verb, 
that's when you know you've made it. Yes, yeah, it was worrying actually. But um, I, look, I, I am also a creature who, uh, you know, craves diversity. I'm easily bored. I was a dreadful student because I think the classroom bored me immensely. So every day being different and encountering different people and thinking and learning all the time meant that I was naturally predisposed. So therefore, I knew in my heart of hearts I had to do these things. So that as part of that, um, it was probably planned uh, because it was my makeup that I had to serve. But also, I have this deep belief that life is not a dress rehearsal. And so every moment is precious. And you know, I, I want to spend it well. So I'm interested in learning, doing new things, but also, you know, doing it for greater good. You know, I you know, was put on this planet to hopefully raise some decent children who become wonderful human beings, but also to use everything I've got for a greater good. And I get a lot of joy out of that. So um, those kind of things meant that, you know, some of it was by design, some of it was by chance, some of it was as I was doing it, it was feeding my soul and I was learning as I go, I, I need to do more of this. I can assure you, you know, I would be, um, you know, a public menace if I was just in my day job. Uh, not because my day job is not fulfilling, wonderful and with great people, uh, but I do them a service by having interests outside of work and outside of home because, um, you know, <laughs> otherwise I'd probably be, um, you know, uh, vibrating too heavily on the work topic to try and you know, feed my soul. No, I think that balance that you've managed to achieve is, uh, yeah, an incredible benchmark for us all. Something that really resonates with me, uh, just listening to you, just that that sense of purpose and um, giving back to your community uh, is a really important one. And your ability to do that as well through your work. So, not just in terms of the advisory roles, but um, specifically with Culture Amp, uh, is definitely something I, I spend a lot of time thinking about when it comes to how do we actually build CAPE in a way which is more about uh, being value additive as opposed to just um, taking. Uh, and I think sometimes uh, modern business it seems to get too focused in terms of, and especially the, the fast growth ones. And it's amazing to be in fact, within the kind of the startup ecosystem but it sometimes feels like it loses sight from what the sole purpose and mission is what what it there it exists to do and and i think especially within uh, the banking space there is a, a misalignment you know, uh, in terms of uh, the values of trying to give back to their customers or trying to sometimes unfortunately encourage them to do things which aren't in their best interests uh, but they're in the the bank institution's best interests, uh, and that's I mean looking back in terms of your just to try and tie this all together in terms of the values and the story. Um, thing that I I was quite interested in when when I was looking at your career development and especially where you've moved to with Coltramp and hearing that um, starting off with Macquarie, um, going to NAB and then becoming the CEO of AMP. Um, yeah, starting in banking and financial services and then moving moving totally away. First of all, did you always set out that that was going to be the career path? And was there a catalyst? Was there something that changed somewhere along the way which led you to go, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of done with that part of the, or I'm done with that industry. I'm, I'm now going to move on to something completely different because that is a big shift moving from there. Or at least on the, on the face of things, it looks a big, 
pivot to move from there into um, the into the SaaS space that you've gone after? Uh, look, it is and it isn't. Uh, I mean, I did, you know, I, I grew up in a, a rural area uh, with um, parents who were small business owners and, uh, you know, we, we did it. You know, we lived in a family business or a series of family businesses. So um, commerce was part of my DNA. You know, we, you know, as we were talking about, you know, uh, how you manage a client base, what do you look like, how do you make money the right way? Like if you're in a small regional area um, and you're running a business, your reputation is gone in minutes and there's not a new set of customers to replace the customers. Like there's only so many people who live in a small country area. So um, I was schooled in servicing the customers and looking after the customers and making money the right way from the time I was in a high chair. That took me to banking because, and I made a declaration as a little person to my mother that I would work in banking because it w- it really struck me that we needed to get capital to the right people so that they had security and that they were able to, you know, uh, navigate, you know, secure lives and work and things like that because work can be very insecure in rural areas with drought, etc. Um, and, you know, mum and dad were always worried about the 50 mortgages of their staff, not their mortgage. And so I, I felt that. So I really went into banking with a, I'm going to make sure capital gets to the right people. And uh, I am a firm believer in making money the right way. It served me immensely well in my career. And, uh, you know, I meet people all the time. They go, I can't believe you're a banker. And, um, you know, uh, you know, not all bankers are terrible. I can assure you of that. But I am atypical. I've been disruptive in that environment my entire career. Uh, and it served me really well. I've had permission to do a whole heap of things that, uh, many people before me would never have even done because they wouldn't have uh, assumed they would get permission. But I've led, I've run very large customer-led businesses and made lots of decisions that would surprise people with full support of board and executive and proven the business case for doing so. The thing about that which I really love and I learnt and I got more confident about as I went on was that the more decisions I made like that that looked brave and disruptive, the more success I had with them, the more uh, uh, support I got in making those decisions because they became less risky. Uh, they became less frightening for boards to support me on. And um, they kind of empowered, a, you know, a whole collection of people to be bold in their suggestions. And so I loved that. And essentially when I decided to move to Coltrap, I had made a decision. I was living in Sydney. I wanted to move back to Melbourne because it was pretty clear my kids were thinking of Sydney as their home and we wanted them to have the same emotional home with, as us, which was Melbourne. So we knew we had to get them back to school here. Uh, I made a decision that I didn't want to have two teenage daughters with a mother on an aeroplane to Sydney every week. I wanted to be present. And so just with that simple kind of logic, I went, well, we're moving back to Melbourne, so my children are in my home thinking that's their home. I don't want to be in an aeroplane and be with them. Therefore, I must resign and find a Melbourne-based job. Uh, and then that just presented an opportunity. I went, wow, uh, I'm at an age now that I've got tons of experience. I've got probably more options than you might otherwise have. But if I don't do something radically different right now, I'll run out of runway uh, because I'll be too late in my career. So I really just set myself with the task that, I wanted something that was about 
positive impact for people, uh, that was fast growing, that was positively disruptive, um, that would give me lots of dance floor to kind of go nuts on. And so none of that was incongruous with any of my banking career, but I just, I don't care what industry it's in, as long as those things are true and it's Melbourne-based. Um, and I started walking with the founder um, during COVID because I was introduced to him by a neighbour and he lived really near to me. And um, in our many, many walks during that dreadful lockdown period, he said to me, I think what you're describing is my organisation and, you know, the rest is history. That's serendipity right there. <laughs> talking, talking about serendipity, so the Culture Amp founder, CEO, was one of your neighbours and that to build that kind of relationship prior to actually joining is is fantastic. Well, I like to think he doesn't regret it. You, you're about, you've been there two years. I think it's fair to say, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's not the case. No, 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 it's good. It's good. I'm sure he's had careful of what you wish for moments because, you know, uh, but it's been fabulous and, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it ticked every kind of box that I was describing. And, you know, I had thought that my influence on people would also be a much larger organisation because I was used to leading large organisations and large teams. Um, but, you know, to actually have a leadership impact in an organisation but then also be part of building and distributing a product that does that just kind of blew my mind and was a bit irresistible. That's a double whammy right there. Um, I, just on that point about the the CEO, what, what I am and again, just thinking about the kind of audience here, before you started, you were CEO of AMP. Uh, and again, I, I did say this before, like you, you've, you've had such an eclectic career in terms of the roles and responsibilities. And even now, actually, just when you start the conversation where you're talking about what it is that you cover over at Culture App, how did that, in terms of taking on the CEO role and doing that over a three, four-year period, well, did it, I was going to say, like, did it give you a different appreciation of the relationship between a CFO and a CEO? Um, because it, it, for me, you know, getting the alignment between those two individuals, you want them joined at the hip, and it's possibly one of the most important relationships. And you know, especially thinking about a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce, you know, if there's two people in a in a company that you want, and especially in this kind of economical environment, you know, it's those two. So. Did you find that that kind of developed and changed, uh, I guess, your kind of thinking and mindset and then also what you, you then brought to the table with Culture? I have to say I worked with, I think, the most talented CFO that I've ever worked with in um, at AMP Bank. And uh, so she definitely taught me a lot and uh, I loved working with her. She was magnificent and so there's no doubt that... Uh, Working with her influences everything I do every day. That's amazing to have a, a mentor like that in that case. Yeah, no, she's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, but um, I, um, you know, with Didier and I, so Didier is the, the CEO and founder, we talked about uh, that we had different pieces of the puzzle. I had never worked in SaaS or technology or a scale-up. Um, but I had run listed and regulated entities at scale and also had run them as culture-first entities, uh, which is part of what CultureAmp is doing. 
and living, but it's new territory the bigger we get. Um, you know, every every time we turn around, Didier is running a bigger organisation than he was running yesterday. And so we really agreed that that was quite a powerful partnership. And so we have very much a divide and conquer mindset and we work a lot on things together. So when I was walking with him and he was proposing to me that, you know, this was what I was looking for, I, you know, had opportunity to challenge that. And I said to him, well, you know, like I, I'm going to sit in this COO, CFO chair and behave like a CEO because actually I don't know how to do anything else. Like uh, I have run businesses for the lion's share of my career. So at that stage I'd only sat in a CFO chair for two years and it, it wasn't, you know, my most joyful role. And so I said, you know, that's what you're going to have. You're going to have someone who is going to sit there and behave like a CEO. And he was really up for that because what I was meaning by that is I'm going to pretend I run the business from that chair and I'm going to think about everything like the business owner. And the idea of that partnership um, was really interesting and attractive to him. And so we have push and pull on lots of things. Uh, We pick up different, you know, we might say, you've got this one, you run with it, uh, I've got this one, and then there's like we better do this one together because I can just see we're both going to be opinionated and have to think about it. Um, and so, you know, the remit of what I do changes constantly, but he and I are in constant dialogue about what we're trying to do, how we're trying to grow this business, create an environment where people grow fabulous careers they're immensely proud of how we make money the right way and improve the world of work. So, you know, that just that conversation is endless and then what are the practical decisions on how we make that true? That sounds like a fantastic partnership with Didier. You know, talking to other CEOs, I know it's something that they all aspire to have. Yeah, and there's definitely been a shift towards wanting CFOs to not just be uh, financial stewards, uh, you know, taking control of the financial operations or even just um, being able to be yeah, the execution focused, but wanting someone who is also strategic and someone that can act as a catalyst for building momentum. Like it's so so important, especially in that startup and scale up space. You know, I look at our CFO and CEO in Tanya, and I find that she epitomizes this. You know, with her ability to both work in the business, as in the coalface of Cape, as well as working on the business from more of a strategic perspective. You know, working. Uh, on the business piece, just looking at that from Cultramp's perspective, how do you guys go about um, things like the business planning processes, say things like uh, OKRs, right? So say with goal setting and creating effective key results, you know, getting that um, right with being specific um, in terms of metrics uh, that that what you want to put out there that you want everybody to to point towards whilst ensuring that they're time bound and that they are super ambitious but they're also grounded in realism like how do you achieve all of that oh ryan this is a massive topic <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh sorry i i i mean i tell you quite simply uh you know, we have just completed an exercise where uh, we uh, had Didier imagine Coltramp at the end of 2025. And uh, he's a fabulous storyteller. And so we had him write the story of New Year's Eve uh, 2025. And um, 
you know, uh, which we call the painted picture. Um, what would be true then about the organisation? And uh, we shared that with the entire team. So they had the same vision of the future that we had. Uh, then we worked with our VP layer uh, to think about all the things that had to be true to create that painted picture. And then we um, looked at a series of goals that we would have to meet that would ladder up to that. Once we knew what those things were that would have to be true and what this, you know, makeup of each of those was, we have set uh, for every half year what is the next objective, set of objectives and the set of key results that must be delivered in this half to create the truth of that painted picture in 2025. And for each of the objectives, we have cross-functional owners. So, you know, you might have the head of IT own one with the head of HR um, so that we are making them work cross-functionally and very aligned and putting all the resources on the things that we have decided are the path to that painted picture. And, uh, you know, it's a rolling cadence. So, you know, this six months, this is what we're doing. What's the next set of objectives and KRs? for us to um, take the subsequent steps. So when we get to 2025, that painted picture is not a lovely story that we've written and recorded and shared. It's actually the reality of who we are. And so at a high level, that's how we run ourselves. Um, but it gives everyone um, a very clear view of the future. It you know, meets them in their mind and in their heart uh, and then you know, engages them in understanding what the next best step is to make that true. So in a very kind of, you know, abridged way, that's my answer. I'm not going to lie, I could literally talk to you for hours on this one <laughs> and I'd love to pick your brain more, but I'm also aware of time and your time. Um, I do have, and thank you, um, I do actually have one last question, which I actually was super interested in, if you could indulge, which is I was doing some background research on you guys and I noticed that you're a, a B Corp. and I was really curious to hear, um, I don't know if you can share anything, um, whether this predates or, but I imagine this is something which regardless of it predates, it, it still will impact day-to-day -day operations. I just wondered if you could share any insights around um, either the journey that was to get become a B Corp or um, just the day-to-day -day in terms of obligations and what that kind of looks like. Yeah, the journey does predate me, uh, and um, so I really can't talk to too much of that. But we do have to certify every two years, so um, we have to maintain the range of what we've committed to keeping it as a truth. I, I have to say, because we built that into our DNA early, um, it hasn't been difficult. It's more difficult, I think, when you've got an organisation and you're reverse fitting it. Um, it iterates and we do have to kind of move the waterline as the waterline is moving and shifting. But, you know, we're really thinking broader than that these days um, from an ESG perspective, you know, things like, you know, net zero, um, our own DEI objectives, like, you know, uh, a lot of those things are really, you know, we're setting our own standards around it, sort of, Pledge, uh, pledging 1%, how we direct those monies, etc. So, um, you know, 
I actually think, you know, when I think about the established organisations I've worked with that have been more than 150 years old, uh, I think it's much more difficult to retrofit some of this where it is really part of our DNA now. Um, there is like an administrative layer that we we carry and probably carried early, but in the belief that you know, these are really good investments in demonstrating a business case for showing people how to make money the right way, kind of things like you know B Corp certification, pushing for net zero, um, how we sell our products. So if you're a BIPOC-owned company, which is Black, Indigenous or people of colour, you know, you'll get a 38% discount off our rack rate because we know BIPOC people earn 38% less. Like we just do this stuff now and it's who we are. And, um, you know, yes, there's some certification and some administrative to uh, how we bring that to life in the B Corp certification or, you know, the Heart Foundation tick of approval that that is. Um, but it is actually just who we are these days. That's fantastic. I absolutely love the fact that you are so aware and again present in this market and trying to drive uh, being a force for good um we need more <laughs> sally bruce's uh, hopefully that will become the verb and uh yeah i, I think um cool trump's doing an amazing job so thank you so much for taking time out today um i really do appreciate um just everything you've taking us through in terms of your background and experience. Um, there's some amazing things for hopefully our, well, our listeners to take away, and I'll be sure to add um, all the links to the show notes. Uh, for anybody that's keen to get in touch, what's the best way to reach out, whether it's just with Tramp or yourself? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to do so, um, given the variety of topics that we've talked on. So it may not be relevant to Tramp, but yes, uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Thank you so much again for taking the time out to chat with us today, Sally. Really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, Till next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan.